electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl and John, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report, everybody. And if you don't like red on the screen, you might want to turn away. The selling returning across the board, nearly every sector, nearly every stock is down And one of the world's best-known investors says he is still leaning short on this market. Tech really hit hard. You heard it on Tech Check. Micron results rocking semiconductors. So where exactly is the bottom for this beaten-up area? We're going to debate that and much more all hour with our investment committee today. And that is Shannon Sokocha, Josh Brown, and Steve Weiss. All right, let's first, though, get a check on the markets. And uh, it it is ugly out there, folks. You've got the Nasdaq composite down nearly 3%. The Dow is down one5 on a percentage basis. That is the, quote, best performer. That's a 500-point drop for the Dow. The S&P down 2% as well. The 10-year note yield at 3.66. Pretty much the only two things that are up is the dollar index and the VIX. Josh, I don't, I don't have any great insight today. It's going to be a tough show anyway for a couple reasons. Uh, what do you think is uh, going on today? I think I think keep it very simple. The New York Fed recession probability model just topped the 2020 peak, and it is now at the highest reading since uh, the great financial crisis. Um, you had Q3 GDP come in, uh, revised 3.2 percent annualized rate of growth. Uh, most people, even the bulls, do not expect uh, 2023 to be any better than that. And many uh, very rational market participants believe um, it will be slower. Um, I think the really big story here, though, you got a one-year Treasury at four spots, six four percent. That's your hurdle rate. Like, if you don't have a ton of confidence in whatever you're buying, being able to do better than that, it's a really easy decision um, to just do that with your money and quote unquote let the smoke clear. I'm not saying it's the right strategy. I'm saying that is literally what people are actually doing uh, right now. And it's hard to talk them out of it. And this is where things stand. We heard from noted investor, hedge fund manager, billionaire David Tepper on Squawk Box this morning. Asked him about his market views. Here's what he said. Listen. As a hedge fund manager, I'm going to lean uh, short. You know, I'll be, you know, sh- I'll be short bonds. And I'll, I'm not a great, I'm I like generally an optimist. You know, I have just the way I'm, I just have that sort of uh, lean that way. So it's like, I don't, I'm not, I would probably say I'm leaning short on the equity markets, you know, so right now, because I think they're, you know, I think the upside downside just doesn't make sense to me when I have so many people telling me, so many central banks telling me what they're going to do, what they want to do, what they expect to do. All right, Stephen Weiss, obviously you're good friends with David Tepper, leaning short, you know his mind. What do you think that means, leaning short? Yeah, so Dave very rarely makes bad decisions, although I can think of two just in the last few days. The first, 
uh, taking my wife and I to see Avatar, which was the worst three hours I've spent in modern memory. The second was not ordering the eggplant parmesan last night at dinner, even though I know he really wanted it because he told me so. His market calls, however, are rarely wrong. And what he's saying is very simple. He's saying you can't believe the Fed on the way up and then not believe them on the way down. So the inverse, of course, is in rates. So you can't say I'm all in because the Fed's telling me it's okay to buy risk assets and then say, hey, the Fed's wrong. They're going to pivot any minute. So I'm going to try and pick the bottom in the market. So he said many times his favorite phrase, it is what it is and it is what it is. Forget the voodoo, you know, who's going to win the Super Bowl? That's tell me what the market's going to do. Or, hey, if we don't hold 3,900 on the S&P, then it's going to go down. If we do, it's going to go up. That's just ask nine look at that. When this is the simplest market to navigate that I've seen. As I said in the show last week, it's as simple as when Dave came out and said, when the Fed started cutting rates, buy the market. This is the same decision. So, look, I think that there's a time to protect your capital. Mm. There's a time to wait on it. Josh points out an excellent strategy. I agree. I've been buying bonds for a while. It's a gift, and you have tax advantages of buying treasuries. So why would you try to put money in the market? First rule of investing is protect your capital. This is going to last for a while. The Fed's not going to turn and start cutting rates in three months. And by the way, 4% is not their target. So forget the fact that inflation peaked and that we may see a lower CPI in the next print. The fact is, the Fed's not giving up until they're comfortable you're going to get to their target of 2%. And we are so far from there, so far, that it's going to be a long, rough road to get there. Yeah, and we'll bring in Steve Leesman in a moment. Maybe they're going to have to change that target. I mean, 2% just seems like, you know, a 1,000 miles away at this point. Shannon, what are you going to advise to your clients? That's I'm sure the point, you're getting, Yeah, I know. And I'm, Shannon, I'm sure you're getting nervous calls. It's a nervous time. Josh's point about pretty much, I don't want to say 100%, but... Damn close to it in terms of a recession indicator. What's your what's your best strategy? Well, I think if you're if you're managing a diversified portfolio, which is what we do, um, we're really thinking about what happened in November and October, and feeling like whether or not we're going to have a Santa Claus rally or not was really we were sort of indifferent to that coming into December. Our view back in August was that we were going to continue to add to our exposure in other areas outside of equities and namely bonds, but in some other alternatives as well. Because we were anticipating that while there would be enthusiasm as it relates to a potential for a pause or a pivot, that our view is that we had, we did not, we were not sure that the market was really pricing in the longer tail, the lagged effect of, of these higher rates and that financial conditions are likely to remain somewhat tight at least through the middle of next year. With that said, I think it's important to, to note that there are likely opportunities, relative opportunities within the equity market if you're building a diversified portfolio. But I would say that going back to what Josh and Steve have said, you really have to look at it in the context of cash in hand. And so I think there is a premium being afforded to investments that can provide a cash flow. I think that even for those investors who do not necessarily require a cash flow, to be able to live on, there is a, a premium being afforded mm. to something that is cash in hand, and that is potentially to afford them the opportunity to add to risk on exposure in the back half of next year. I'd say the other thing that you know I think is going to potentially weigh on the market as we move into 23, 
Brian, is is China. Um, I think there's been, if you look at what's happened in, in Chinese stocks, for instance, um, I think that we are overstating and, and more optimistic than we should be about yeah. a pivot in China policy. And so investors are probably being um, cautious enough as it relates to this potential Fed pivot, but I'm not sure they're being cautious enough as it relates to what's happening in China. And I don't even hear anybody talking about Europe, which, as we've been reporting for about a year and a half now, is headed for probably an industrial disaster, given that they're going to run out of natural gas or come close to it. Josh, I don't like to look at individual stocks too much as any kind of a tell. I'm sure you don't either. I know we talk a lot about Micron. I've been looking at KMX, which is CarMax. CarMax down 7%, down 15%. In a week, and when I only bring it up because you talk about recession indicators, and when I think about things that may be sort of a tell to what consumers may do, CarMax's numbers not looking good. You know, I think CarMax is just one more uh, grain of sand in a, in a, in a desert of, of these types of stories, like individual stories where the pandemic was so wacky and pulled forward demand to such a great extent. And I remember like doing the show and people being like, oh, you know, just wait until cars become affordable again. And, and I, I remember saying like, be careful what you wish for because the reason that would happen is probably not gonna be a great reason overall. Um, one of the things that was startling to me, the Qs have given up all, almost all of their relative outperformance of the Dow back to December of 2019. That is a huge story, and I just want to give people a, a quick idea of what I mean by that. Um, the Qs are only outperforming the Dow back to December of 2019 by 5%. So they're up 28% since then, and, uh, and the Dow is up 23%. At the top, in December of 21, the Qs were up 93%, and the Dow was only up 33%. And I think the story there is that regardless of what your investing style is, stick around long enough and you will see it both look like an absolute dog and then look like the absolute king. And the most important thing that you want to remind yourself, whether you're a growth investor or a value investor or dividends or or whatever you think is the secret sauce or your focus, remind yourself of that. Nothing works all the time. In this particular environment, you are now seeing the benefit of maybe it's a relative benefit, it's not an absolute benefit, but owning Dow type stocks, owning industrials that are cheaper than the S&P, have the cash flow that Shannon was referring to, have the dividends and are able to weather uh, a not so great environment. It doesn't mean they'll go up, they'll lose a lot less than other areas of the market. And there are people watching this who are investing 100% uh, by mandate. They have no choice but to own something. So if you do have to buy things mm-hmm. and you feel compelled to be long or your job is such that you must be long, I feel like that's where you're going to continue to go. And so if there is going to be relative strength in this market, it's going to be in areas like that. And I don't know what would reverse that. Uh, you know, you, you yeah. can get a Fed pivot but Josh, and a huge you know, NASDAQ rally, what, but it's still a recession. I'm going to go to Steve in a second, but Josh, come back to you. Listen, you know, it's Hanukkah. It's almost Christmas time. It's almost the new year. Let's, let's try to be a little more optimistic. I know you've got kids. I've got kids. If you're investing for five and seven years out, to our points the other day about historical market returns, I know right now is scary. Next year may be scary. But if I'm thinking about five or ten years from now, I've got to imagine that some of these declines have got to be for lack of a better term, tasty. 
Long term? 100%. Actually, I want to toss this question to Steve because I think he would agree with this and he would know better than I would. Um, obviously, nobody should think that they're David Tepper and nobody should be trying to manage their IRA as though they are a hedge fund manager or somebody who can be leaning short. So, like, we, we all understand that, but it, it really should be said. But the other thing that I'd be curious to hear Steve's take on Tepper historically has made incredible calls at market lows where he's gone from bearish to like full tilt bullish. He's under no obligation to pop back on Squawk Box and announce the day he's doing it. But people should understand he may be bearish and then something may come along that makes him want to go the other way. And that's the nature of what he does. Most people don't have the wisdom, the experience, the instinct, the talent to be able to do that. Steve, I think you would agree with that, right? Yeah, I, I would. Uh, look, it, it, not only that, they don't have the no bias that he has. So if you're a wealth manager or a fund manager, you're biased, and it's an honest bias. I'm not suggesting you come by it in a dishonest way. And in fact, their mandate is to be long, because generally they're not, particularly mm. institutional fund managers, they're not the asset allocators. They're given money to invest in the market, and many of them can't go more than 10% cash uh, in the funds. But, and Dave mentioned that today, is that if you're long-term, like we'll talk about it in a bit, I own a couple of stocks, I'm not selling them, because the tax impact will be greater than the decline in the stocks owing to my market view. So you shouldn't be trading uh, around your market. Dave can turn on a dime. However, I would handicap the probability of that in the next quarter at least of being 10% or less. But the trick is to have that flexibility when you can as he. And not only is he one of the best to ever live in, you know, on walk the earth, but he's also got just incredible sources of information that you and I don't have. So, I mean, he relies yeah. on a guy, Phil Glassman from MTL, who's phenomenal at predicting, predicting markets. But so you can't you can't trade your market around. Uh, as you point out, Josh, I agree a thousand percent, you know, just, you know, listen to Tepper because you don't know when he's going to change his mind. Yeah, and it's, and it's well said. Now, I'm just trying to stretch it out to be a little more long term. And, and we're going to bring in Steve Leesman in just one moment. Shannon Sakocha, very quickly to you before we go to Steve Leesman, which is when I'm looking at some names, and again, I'm not recommending stocks, not my job, but I'm looking at some of these industrials. I think we talked about Masco the other day. Masco's down 40% this year. Generac down 75% this year. It's like no one's going to have a power outage anymore. There are certain stocks that just don't seem like they're making a lot of sense from a three and five year perspective. That's to me anyway. Nobody cares what I think. What do you think? Well, I, I just want to I, I really want to uh, uh, compound what Josh was saying. The importance here is that don't please do not just look at how much a stock is down from its 52 week high or this year, year to date, two years, whatever that metric is. Please do not just look at that and think this is a great deal. The the reset in valuations for some of these stocks, the reset in multiple 
for many of these names, it was warranted. Um, if you think about what's, what a Masco is trading on, Masco is trading on the fact that we are experiencing significant compression mm -hmm. in the housing market. There is a probably 12 to 18 month time period where the housing market is going to remain weak. But to your point, three to five years from now, we are still undersupplied in single family homes. We are going to get a demographic lift from a new generation of home buyers, and frankly, a combination of better affordability and more supply is probably going to make that an easier, less uphill battle for those buyers. So Masco is a great example of something we hold in our portfolio because we know that this sell-off is probably warranted given the next few quarters of expectations, but longer term, there is yeah. a tailwind in this lower single-family supply that cannot be understated. All right, let's stretch it out and bring in the aforementioned senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman, to kind of add on to this inflation conversation. And, and Steve, uh, listen, you probably heard me say, you know, you wonder if the Fed will change that 2% target. I know that seems weird, change the goal, you know, goal line or the goal posts. But when I think about wage inflation, Steve, I think about giving people raises. You're not going to take those raises necessarily back. And is that stickiness of wage inflation make that 2% target not impossible, but close to it? It, it, it makes it harder to achieve for sure. But, but Brian, I've been listening to this great conversation you've been having, and I, I have to comment that I think it's the measure of the hallucinatory nature of a good part of, of traders in this market right now that a man who comes on and says, listen to the Fed, listen to the ECB, watch what the Bank of Japan just did, that that's considered some incredible font of wisdom. It is, it is, it is wisdom because it's so simple. Um, and you want to know uh, what what he's thinking and when he's going to turn. He's going to turn when the values or the levels in the market are commensurate with where the Fed and the ECB have said they're going. And these numbers are not hard to, to ascertain. Why? Because they've said them. And, and, and Tepper's coming on. He's saying, this is not rocket science. Just listen to them. So he sees a two-year trading at 420, and he thinks that's just stupid. He looks at the 10-year German Bund, and he sees it trading at 250 with a, uh, a Lagarde who's come forward and said, I got three more 50 basis point hikes in me, and he thinks that's stupid. So when is he going to turn? When those values more nearly approach what he thinks the central banks around the world are going to do, then he might turn and go the other way. But there's a long way between that and where those values are right now. You would say the market, I'm, I'm trying to find a little humor in what's been a tough day uh, on a few levels for me, Steve, which is the market's on Lagarde for any kind of a, a pivot by the ECB or the Federal Reserve. I mean, you know Jay Powell. You know the Fed. You know him as well as anybody out there, Steve. I mean, when you look into the whites of their eyes at those Fed meetings, you know, or the, the press conference with Powell, do you see any crumbling of resolve? No, if you, and, and, and it's a great question, Brian, because if you look back at Almost every one of my questions to the Fed chair over the past several meetings, it has been looking for that potential to crumble the resolve, and it's not there. You know, he keeps coming out. The market keeps hoping it's going to be it's going to be dovish, or they're going to get a little, you know, a uh, 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 gap to to ride through. But he doesn't give it a gap. There's no. It's all. You know, look at what they did. They raised that 
that uh, terminal rate or the 23 projection to 5.12%. And the first thing that I, the second thing out of my mouth after they hiked 50 was 17 of 19 members of the FOMC are above 5%. Seven of them are above 540. So they really think they have a long way to go. And Brian, this gets back to circling back to your question, which is it's going to be tough to bring it down, but they intend to do it. And they intend to do it by getting at the area where they think the inflation problem is, and that is in wages. We can argue if that's hey, right Steve. or wrong. And I think the simplicity Weiss, and the wisdom of Tepper. Is it Josh is or that, Steve? Is Josh that wants to get not, in here. Well, yeah, just real quick, I, the Steve, simplicity of Tepper is not that he's involved in it being right or wrong. The simplicity here is he's saying, I don't care if they're right or wrong. This is what they're doing. Steve, I want to ask you a question Sorry, that I'll, I'll take a, a, a con- I'll take a concept from trading, and I'd be curious to hear your perspective on why the Fed wouldn't look at things this way. In trading, we've got two different ways of looking at a 200-day moving average. If we look at it in a simple moving average, it weights uh, all, let's say, 10-month moving average. It would weight each of the 10 months the same. If we look at an exponential 10-month uh, moving average, it would give a higher weight to the more recent months thereby picking up on a change in the trend quicker or giving more emphasis to what's been happening recently versus over the whole 10-month period. Why is the Fed focused or seemingly focused on these year-over-year numbers um, when, if you look at month-over-month CPI, the last print, I think, was 0.1% versus an expectation of 0.3%. Why are we not waiting more recent data in things like housing? which is in, a, in the services calculation. Why are we focused on this month versus this month last year? It, I don't want to say irrelevant, but it almost seems like if you're trying to hit a, a certain target, look at the target, look at what's happening right now. And if you do that, inflation is coming down much more quickly if you overweight the last three months, the last six months, versus look at the whole 12-month picture. Are they, I know they're aware of this. Why won't they do that? The, the, the reason is because, and again, not saying they're right or wrong, they're not really fighting, uh, uh, Josh, this next two or three point decline in inflation. They think that's given to them. They're really getting back to the question that Sully asked, which is, how do they get to two? And they can get to four, they can get to five. And in fact, I did a story this week about the five month or the six month annualized look, which, as you say correctly, Josh, is quite a bit lower than the year over year look. The trouble that Powell has is he's going to get help from goods inflation declining. He's got deflation in that area. He's going to have and he's accepted he's going to get the housing inflation to come down six months from now. It's that third part of the leg there. The uh, services, ex-housing, core services that is driven mostly by wages, driven by essentially this structural problem in the wage, uh, in the labor market that's created high wages, that he is now positioning himself to fight that. And his best guess, Josh, is that in order to do that, he's got to bring down demand. He must have GDP. He must have growth running below potential to create slack in the labor market to stop that those wages from going up that much and pushing up inflation in that sector, which is a huge part of core inflation. That's the reason he's not fighting the battle of the first couple points in front of him. That happens through supply chain clearing, goods deflation, all the good stuff that happens. 
It's the next points getting from five, yeah. four, five and four down to three and two. You know, I, I like the idea, Steve, because it's to, to your point about temper. It's it's what do they say? You get what you get. And you don't get upset. It's like this bad weather rolling in. You can complain all you want about it. It stinks to drive in it. But if you're driving in it, you got to do the best you can. And I think that's kind of where the Fed is now. Don't fight the Fed. Roll with it. That's why. That's why, by the way, Tepper's a billionaire. He does have a Sam Darnold issue, but that's a football show, and we'll leave that for somebody else. Steve Leisman, thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks. All right, appreciate it, guys. By the way, Steve, Buffalo getting, like, uh, their usual three feet of snow. All right, up next, semiconductors getting slammed. We're going to debate the battered technology trade coming up. The SMH, Micron, others down big. The markets down 578 on the Dow. We are back after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, tough Thursday out there in the street of dreams. The Dow Industrials down 583. That's 1.75%, but it's really, once again, technology getting hit the hardest. The NASDAQ comp down 3.2%. That is a 340-point drop. Pretty much every stock in the NASDAQ 100 is down. All right, no sector inside of technology is getting hit harder than semiconductors. Now, semiconductors, it's not just today. The group is on pace for its sixth down day in the past seven days, let's throw up the SMH. That is the Van Eck Semiconductor ETF. Its top holdings, Taiwan Semi, NVIDIA, ASML, that's 30% of that ETF right there. And the SMH is down nearly 6%. Uh, Shannon, I'm going to quickly go to you on semiconductors. Uh, we know the world's not going to, again, to my earlier point, the world's not going to stop using semiconductors, as far as I'm concerned, over the next you know, 50 years been a rough ride, though. Do we have a macro longer term view on this group? At some point, they they will stop going down. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think that it depending on which pocket you're looking at um, in the semi space, as well as each company, um, the concerns, the overarching concerns about oversupply 
um, you know, from the, the pandemic disruptions, um, you know, I think are going to create some divergence in this group. I mean, if, if you had talked to me a couple of years ago, Sully, I would have said, if you want to be in semis, you just buy the ETF and, and you sort of enjoy that, that beta play of, of being in the space. I think now you really need to look at more on a company by company basis. I think there have been, you know, from a valuation perspective, there are some cheaper opportunities and perhaps those are closer to a bottom because these are truly the newest, the new cyclical. This is the new transport. This is how is the economy doing? And so if you're anticipating that there's going to be a meaningful contraction in economic growth next year, I think the semis could remain under some pressure. Um, the reality is, is that over time, over the next 5, 10, 15 mm. years, there is going to continue to be really strong demand for chips. But you've got to be in the right companies and really think about in this next year to year and a yeah. half, which ones have a secular tailwind, such as a market share story as with AMD, um, than other ones that are perhaps just going along for the ride. Josh, is NVIDIA the right company long term? Obviously not today, long term. I, th I think so. I think what they've done is they've built the next generation of tech platform. And I think uh, it's going to be, if you're building anything that has to do with AI, which frankly could be the breakout technology of this decade, most of the people who are smarter than I am seem to believe so. It's going to be very hard to build anything that has to do with AI and avoid working with uh, NVIDIA GPUs um, in addition to the software platform and all the other things they're doing. But NVIDIA's had a tough uh, a year or two. They were blocked from the, uh, the ARM acquisition, which could have been transformative. There was a lot of excitement about that not happening. Uh, they were told by the U.S. government they can't sell a certain level of chips into China, which is a huge end market for them. And there's really no reason to think that next year is going to be some blockbuster year for enterprise spend. They rely very heavily on demand from data centers. Um, the whole crypto piece of the story is up in smoke. And I don't think there's a big console cycle. So all of the reasons why you would be bullish on NVIDIA in the short term just mm -hmm. don't exist. So I'm in the stock. I'm in it for, I don't know, eight years. I'm not selling it, um, but I'm not uh, pounding the table or wanting to own more right now because I just don't feel like uh, anything's going to change anytime soon. And unfortunately, part of being a long-term investor is accepting that not every stock is going to be on the 52-week high list all the time. You know, I love that point, Stephen Weiss, because investing's hard. If it was easy, everybody would be billionaires. we just buy stuff. It would never go down, and, and that's it. I mean, investing is hard, and you've got to true, stick true through story. The, 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 the tough times, right, Stephen? I mean, you've been through many cycles in your long, yep. illustrious career. Yeah, it, it's really tough, and, and that's why, you know, my comment before, you can't just rely on one data point or cherry-pick data points, like saying, technically, if we do this, if technicals were so, so great, then it'd be pretty easy. We just look at support lines, buy them when they hold, and when they hit resistance, sell. But that's not the way it is. And to Josh's point, look, Josh has played NVIDIA much better than I did. I remember, you know, years ago, I bought it at 35 and thought I was a freaking genius because I sold it at 80, and then look at where it's gone to over 300. So yeah, so you get plenty wrong, and that's one where I made money that got wrong. Hate to tell you about all my, my mistakes where I've got pummeled. There have been plenty of them, Boeing for one. But here's what I'd say about NVIDIA. You know, I was short, and 
by puts and covered those uh, before yesterday. Uh, I'm tempted to put them out again because I just don't think any semiconductor company, and that's what they are, is worth that valuation. However, I think Josh's approach is right. Eventually, they'll grow into the valuation, not in this market, but continuing to take that long-term view. He'll be right. And uh, by the way, he's made a lot of money. So it's not going to go down 50% from here, at least I don't think. So why would he sell it when he's got massive gains in it You know that are more than 50%? But technology catches up. No semiconductor company, no technology company has held their competitive edge for the, for the test of time. They just don't, okay, because there are patents. People look at their patents, and they work around them. So I wouldn't own NVIDIA here. I wouldn't own any semi here. To Shannon's point, yeah, they're industrial. Mm-hmm. They're embedded in every product. But I'd be short the industrials. In fact, I am. I put back on my short in the XLI because the, the industrials do worse they're they're not late they're not late cycle stocks. When rates yeah. are going up, they go down. Period. Yeah, shorting the XLI, maybe not the strategy for just the casual investor watching halftime report right now, but we're going to keep an eye on those uh, those industrials. All right up next, this mystery chart down 20% this week. It is not a stock. You can know what it is. Let us know. We're going to bring the reveal. What it means and maybe. How to invest around it in our chart of the day. Halftime is back with the Dow down 615 points. Stick around. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Bertha Coombs. Here's our CNBC News update at this hour. Pele's health worsening during his hospital stay to regulate his cancer medication. The Albert Einstein Hospital in Sao Paulo says that Pele's cancer has advanced and the 82-year-old Brazilian soccer legend is under elevated care related to kidney and cardiac issues. Pele has been undergoing chemotherapy since he had a colon tumor removed in September of last year. President Biden was briefed on the impending winter storm expected to bring heavy snow, strong winds and dangerously cold temperatures to many parts of the U.S. Biden urged people who are under threat from the potentially hazardous weather to heed local warnings. This comes as more than 1,700 flights have been canceled across the country just days before one of the busiest travel weekends of the year. And despite the harsh weather warnings, the U.S. Postal Service says it's still on track to meet its holiday delivery deadlines. The agency says on-time deliveries have increased from last year, with nearly 92 percent of first-class letters arriving within one to five days. And Brian, of course... Santa Claus makes it through no matter what, thanks to Rudolph. Yeah, it's got, I mean, the red nose. It just, yep. it, you know, they used to make fun of him. But then they exactly. realized that his unique snaz had a... That's uh, the beauty, right? That's, that's, that's the tale. I've, I've been telling the same story about my ears. <laughs> For 50, people used to tease me. I said, you know what? I can hear stuff you can't hear. <laughs> Bertha Coombs, thank you very much. Trying to have a little humor today. It's been a tough day. All right, let's get to your chart of the day. We told you... 
It was not a stock, it is natural gas. It hit its lowest level since late October, and now it's on pace for its worst week in nearly two months. It's down 21%, although energy is the, quote, best sector this week. I'm doing air quotes, Josh, if you can't see it. Uh, listen, you own Chenier LNG. Low natural gas prices is probably bad for producers, probably a positive for LNG. Josh? I was just commenting about my ears, and I realized maybe I just lost my hearing in just that two seconds, but apparently it was an audio issue with Josh. Shannon Sakocha or Stephen Weiss, kind of, can I put you up on the screen? Raise your hand if you got a viewpoint sure. on these energy companies here, because I would imagine, to my point, low natural gas prices, they're not good for the producers. But if you're a buyer of nat gas, like a Chenier, like a Tellurian, whoever it might, a Semper Energy, that's good news because you're in a fixed price contract with Europe or Asia longer term. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Yeah, uh, obviously, you want to be a buyer of co- commodities when they're lower. Um, but, you know, the market just doesn't distinguish necessarily with LNG. I think LNG is, is a great place to be. Uh, but, you know, to me, I think energy is not, not a sector that you own and get married to. If you look over 10 years, you're just making money this year. So it's tradable. I've traded it poorly. I own Chevron. I'm sorry I do. It turned out to be a nice trade. It's turned to be a loser. So I'm actually looking for the exit. Shannon, quickly. Yeah, Steve and I were talking about this the other day. Um, You just really have to watch capital allocation here. Um, There's a lot of cash flowing to these energy companies, and I think that in order for them to continue to create the results that they've created over the last couple of years, they need to remain so, so disciplined on capital allocation in 2023. Yeah, and and Chenier, by the way, still up 47%. They got these fixed contracts, buy low, sell high. All right, up next, the committee is getting ready to grade your trade. As always, you want to trade graded? Send us an email to askhalftime at cbc.com. Tweet us as well. We'll be right back. Well, I've got to show you these markets, folks. So again, the weather is nasty. The markets are nasty. NASDAQ's down 3.4%. The Dow Industrial is down 2%, which is a 658-point drop. Ten-year yields of 3.66. The VIX, the volatility index, is slightly higher. All right, the worst performers in the Dow, you've got Boeing, You've got Microsoft and you've got Intel. Intel, the worst, down about 5.5% right now. There is one stock in the Dow which is higher. And when I say higher, it's higher by a nickel, which is 0.04%, four one-hundredths of a percent, or basically four cents in some ways, Nike, which is uh, the only stock up. By the way, in in the NASDAQ 100, there's one stock up. Vertex Pharmaceuticals, 99 down, one up. That's the kind of day it is. All right. Time now for Grade My Trade. First off, a trade from Mike in South Carolina, the Palmetto State, and bought 2,000 shares of air products and chemicals for $275. Shannon, you own APD. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I would give this trade a A- minus to a B plus. I think that wow. one of the challenges for APD over the course of the next quarter or two um, is this concern about contracting economic growth. Mm-hmm. However, APD, although it feels very commodity-like, um, the, has long-term contracts with many of, its, uh, many of its customers. And they also entered into a recent deal for a green hydrogen plant in Texas. Um, as we know, there are definitely infrastructure issues um, from a power perspective in Texas. And we, and, and we do think that this is going to be able to add earnings over the course of the next couple of years. So we like the trade here. All right, moving on. Subaru bought Rivian at $25.10. So down a bit, maybe six bucks a share or so. Steve, 
you are short Rivian. So I don't know how you grade the trade because they're, they're down. So you're, you're probably happy they're, you're winning, but they're down. Yeah, look, I'm never happy when anybody le- loses money. And candidly, I'm most unhappy when I lose money. Um, Rivian is going <laughs> a lot lower. I, I don't know what anybody's thinking here. Look, these companies, whether it's Tesla, whether it's Lucid, whether it's Rivian, they are car companies. They're not technology platforms. They're not tech companies. Tech companies have margins, particularly software, of 80%. These are capital-intensive companies. Rivian will lose 17 bucks a share this year. They've got, a, a, as I said yesterday, a fortress balance sheet. But I shorted the stock on the first at 30. I pressed the short many times uh, since then, including just this week, I think it goes a lot lower and they'll be depleting cash. So what do you pay Mm. for a car company? You don't pay basically when they're losing money, because we've seen what happens, they go bankrupt. What you pay is six to eight times earnings. They're trading at infinity. So I'd sell it and I'd short it. Yeah, and by the way, if you read the car and driver review of the uh, the SUV, it's it's not not good. All right, finally, Renee bought Microsoft at around $155. All right, uh, Shannon, you own it. Should Renee hang on to the stock? Yeah, I think longer term, if your time horizon is greater than a year, Microsoft is going to benefit from increasing uh, percentage of its revenue driven by cloud, which is much higher, higher margin business for that company. Um, we are going to see potentially some contraction in enterprise spend in 2023. So there will be some pressure. And Microsoft is trading at a premium to the market. And that premium is likely to continue to compress over the next couple of quarters. But again, post 2024 mm-hmm. um, and the, uh, the growth of cloud is going to be the driver and the catalyst for Microsoft over the next five years. All right. Thank you all very much. All right, folks, keep your trades coming in, please. You can send an email to askhalftime at cnbc.com and tweet it using Grade My Trades. Stay with us. Up next, Mike Santoli joins us with his midday word. The ARC Innovation ETF, by the way, down 6% right now. Dow down 650. We're back after this. We are nearly down 700 on the Dow, down 670. It's exactly a 2% drop. NASDAQ down 3.4%. Semiconductors getting crushed. We mentioned the ARK Innovation ETFs, the ARKK, Kathy Woods vehicle down 6% today. It is down 20% in the last 90 days. Joining us now, senior markets commentator Michael Santoli. Mike, anything, first off, anything, any tech company that's money losing, that's been dead, I mean, absolutely dead money. there's nothing really working great at all, but I guess to, to what you're looking at maybe is things that to our investment committee talked about. Companies that actually make money. They're not sexy. That's kind of where people seem to be hiding these days. Without a doubt. I mean, that's been a the theme for a little while. Uh, it feels like that's where people feel somewhat more secure. Uh, you know, but that process has been underway a real long time. I mean, all the, the real speculative end of tech peaked over a year and a half ago. Uh, it's just been this more headlong liquidation today. To be honest, Tesla's disorderly decline today, more than 10 percent. It's down by more than a third this month is really, I think, what, what caused the dam break uh, about, a, you know, within the last hour or so in the broader indexes. Uh, you had the S&P 500 that was trading in the vicinity of the week's lows, 3,800. It seemed like a, just to the lower end of the range. No big deal. That level goes back to, you know, uh, you know, we're going back to the early part of November. It seems to have some significance. And then just the Nasdaq pressure uh, kicks the, the S&P below that, and it becomes a little more 
kind of loose to the downside, pretty, uh, pretty mechanical, but also I think reflects the fact that people feel there's no hurry to stand in the way uh, when you're getting that kind of messy action. So to me, a lot of it is related to that. Very quiet in bonds, very quiet in the dollar. The PCE, core PCE came mm-hmm. in hot. Okay, maybe that's an inflation adverse surprise, but yeah. it's not really driving Fed expectations in the bond market. It seems a lot more equity mechanics. You know, we broke below 3,800. We're at 3,782 on the S&P. You yeah. wonder if we can't hold that, if this doesn't hold. I've seen some, some nasty indicators of what may be to come. We'll find out. Michael Santoli, thank you very yeah. much. All right, up next, it is your, your final trades on Halftime. All right, well, if you've noticed, I've been a little bit um, off today. I've got some sad news to share. A longtime friend of this network and friend of mine, Guggenheim Investments Chief Investment Officer Scott Miner, died suddenly last night at his home. He had a heart attack while lifting weights. Guggenheim CEO Mark Walter releasing a statement saying, quote, I have known Scott for over 30 years. We were partners much of that time. Scott was a key innovator and thought leader who was instrumental in building Guggenheim Investments into the global business it is today. He will be greatly missed by all. My deepest consultants are with his husband family, and loved ones. Now, I want to add some personal uh, unscripted comments if I can here. I've known Scott for more than 15 years. Uh, I've been to Scott's house. I know his husband, Eloy, his dog, Gracie, who tried to bite my ear off one time. Scott was um, a giant of a man. He was a avid bodybuilder, um, terrific human being, and he had giant muscles. Maybe his biggest was his heart, his giving. He was a man of God. He donated a lot of time and money to various causes. He never publicized it. He did it privately. He was never looking for glory. Scott was also in the process of building a, um, a think tank in Iceland, believe it or not. I'm not sure if anybody knows that. Uh, Scott Minard was a good friend of mine. Uh, he was great to this network. He would always take a phone call. And speaking of that, I just want to say something as we head into the break. <sighs> Last night, I was actually going to give Scott a call. I was talking to my wife. So I'm going to call Scott and wish him a Merry Christmas. Scott was a man of faith, and Christmas meant a lot to him. And I said, yeah, I was late. I knew Scott was out west. He was usually working out at that time. I said, I'll give him a call tomorrow. Never got a chance to say Merry Christmas or, or hi to Scott anyway. My thoughts to Eloy, his husband, uh, Gerard Carney, his chief, longtime chief of staff, Ann and David and Brian and Mark and everybody at the Guggenheim team, Dina. Um, Scott will be missed. And uh, Scott, I know you used to give me grief about my shoes. You said, with all that money you make, you think you could afford a better pair of shoes. I hope you're wearing a nice pair of shoes in heaven, my man. We're back right after this. All right, back to business. That's what we do. Tesla, one of the stocks getting hit hard today, down 10%, down 35% this month, down nearly 70% from its highs. Josh, is there a bottom here? I, I don't know, but I, I will tell you that this is the biggest spectacle in the market right now. And no conversation about what's up, what's down uh, is complete without referencing that. You talk about stocks like Rivian. This is the granddaddy of them all. And hundreds of billions of dollars are coming out of the market cap of this stock. It almost feels like on a weekly basis. Um, and and it seems to be getting worse by the minute. The The problem here is... You have people that own the stock for non-financial reasons. They're not in it for the fundamentals. They're in it for dreams and innovation and mm-hmm. a lot of amazing things that the company has been able to do. Um, but this is what the downside of that looks like. And I think when you talk about ARC being down 67% year to date and all of the others, 
This yeah. is the stock that's ground zero for, for what's happening. And I think it's on every trader's screen, on every trader's mind right now. Yeah, 3.7 billion shares outstanding, Josh. It's also important derivatives, all these options and strat Delta One strategies. Josh, kick it off, final trades. If you're unsure of what to do. All right, we lost Josh there. Shannon, coach, a little more time for you and Steve. Shannon. <laughs> DGX, Quest Diagnostics. This is a duopoly with LabCorp. Um, expect to grow 4 to 5% over the course of 2023 on the, on the top line. Um, really being able yeah. to take advantage of scale Steve? and efficiency. Steve? And frankly, defensive in this in market. Yep. Buy treasuries. Buy six months and one year. I've been saying sell yep. short things. I'm telling you to buy something. All right, folks. Buy that, those, stay in the Thank you very much. We'll see you at halftime tomorrow. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.